0: Together as a body, let's pray. Lord God, we've just sung of how you lead us all the way. Through our salvation from eternity to eternity, you have had us on your mind and you have redeemed us so that we can know you, we can talk with you, we can engage you as our Father and as our God. And Lord, this is a love we're not familiar with, an eternal love that uh, is utterly committed to us and our salvation through Christ. It is a strange love. And yet, out of that love, you call us to pray. Out of that love, you lean in and want to listen to us as we pray to you in the spirit, even with groanings uh, that we can't even understand ourselves. So, Lord, we first pray with thanksgiving today for the generous ways you provide for our families, for even our church. We thank you for the tithes and offerings that have been given today, the tithes and offerings that have been given online, and a host of other ways. Thank you for providing for this church, for your mission, for your people in unique ways. And so now we pray silently with thanks, Lord for the countless ways you give to us and you love us by providing our needs. Hear our silent prayers. Creator God over all, you created all men, but... You love men from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and with Christ's blood, you purchased them for your people, your children. So we pray for gospel ministries around the world, Lord, that you would reach new people with the gospel in places where they may not have heard the gospel. We pray, Lord, for Nathaniel Adewanu and the church planters of New Harvest Mission in Togo. We ask You, Lord, to use church planting and the gospel going out in new communities so that more might know You. We pray for the church planters and even the orphanages of El Shaddai in Haiti and ask You, by Your grace, to uh, utilize these means and ministries to reach the poorest of the poor in the Western Hemisphere. Lord, we even pray for the webs, our brothers and sisters who are pursuing a ministry with Wycliffe in Southeast Asia and Thailand. And we ask you, Lord, to provide their needs as they near the end of their itineration and fundraising. And Lord, we also pray that the gospel would go out, even at Wingate University, through campus outreach in new ways. Lord, stir your people uh, and stir these missions so that more might know your name and give you the worship due you. Hear our prayers for these ministries and beyond and for the gospel. Hear our silent prayers. Lord God, we want to reach people with the gospel here in our backyard and We pray yet again for a a tool to do so. We pray for the building and the building process and ask you that you continue to open doors and opportunities for us that we might build a facility, not so we can be more comfortable, but so we can be more effective in our mission to, to our community, to the world, even our own people and kids. Lord, we pray that you would get involved yet again And you would give us wisdom and how to follow you and do this well. And do it well, Lord, according to your will. Hear our prayers for the building process and for wisdom for all involved. Lord God, now we ask that you would open our hearts and you would give us the gospel. The truth that would set us free. And a truth, Lord, from a tough text. We pray you would speak to us in a way to would be clear, even through this speaker, as he desperately needs you. We ask that because you want to reveal yourself and reveal amazing things about who you are. Do that through your word now. In Christ alone we pray. Amen. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word. We are in Romans 9, starting in verse 6. Uh, Paul has been talking about the great assurances we have in Romans 8, and even gets to the question of what kind of assurances there are for the Jews and their future, given all that had happened with them in Christ. And he picks up that argument about their future in verse 6 by saying the following. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Grass withers, flowers fade, and this is the truth that sets us free. You may be seated. It was the 1950s when James Bracey wrote his love letters to his new bride, Sally. And those love letters during that time were full of promises of love. And the reason why was uh, he was stationed at a California military base thousands of miles from his wife Sally, his new wife Sally. He knew she was waiting for him to come home, and the letters were their primary link between each other for admission and reaffirmation, even assurance of love. But one letter... Out of all those, didn't make it to Sally. It somehow was lost, lodged between two walls in Fort Ord's mailroom in San Francisco. Jumping ahead almost 50 years with a, a, a literal life that had been lived together with these two and James and Sally, in the 1990s, they celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary. They did so by listening to their song, with nostalgic moments, apparently a song called Once in a While. They remembered the days of love letters and, and of phone calls from afar. But little did they know that as they were celebrating their anniversary, thousand miles away, back in San Francisco, a construction crew was dismantling the old post office at Fort Ord. The crew discovered... The lost letter, the long-forgotten letter with promises of love from James to Sally. And the crew turned the letter over to the local California postmaster, Bob Spandani. Spandani spent extra time tracking down the Bracys through uh, mail information from the past, post office information, as well as through phone books. And just a few days after listening to their song once in a while, on their 50th anniversary, uh, the letter came to their house. Sally Bracey picked it up one day, and it was dated January 28th, 1955. Sally remembered the promises of love that he had given her, even though it was a letter that was much delayed, even by 50 years And Sally admitted that those promises of love and all those letters and phone calls meant a lot. But getting this one 50 years later meant even more to her then. Promises of love sometimes delayed. The Bible is full of those uh, all over from Genesis to Revelation. Indeed, the Bible is God's love letter to us where over and over again He tells us He loves us, He loves us, He loves us. But as we've said these last few weeks, it is probably one of the hardest doctrines in Scripture to actually believe. Paul has told us and affirmed this love for us in Romans 8, as we've been going through the book of Romans. And he talks about how much God is with us in the power of the Holy Spirit, and how much God is for us in love with us, In Christ, sending him for us as the ultimate sacrifice. And of course, at the very end of Romans 8, he ends the whole thing by saying, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Zip. Zero. Nada. And yet, sometimes these promises of love from God do seem delayed in our lives, don't they? Just like James Bracey's letter Sometimes we struggle with the assurance that God really is interested in us, even committed to us in every circumstance. And there was a people in the early church who felt this very thing, and it was the Romans who Paul was writing to. They struggled as a people who were suffering under some hardship because in their time, being a Christian was not cool. Being a Christian was actually extremely countercultural. And so, as they wrestled with the love of God for them, they started to wonder: How has God, in His love, treated people in the past? And they looked at the Jews, and the story of the Jews throughout the Old Testament. And as a result, they started to wonder: Did God really love the Jews? He told them He did throughout the whole Old Testament. And yet you see over and over again the Jews suffering, the Jews falling off the wagon with sin and idolatry. And you wonder, was God really committed to them after all? And you know why they would ask that question, because sometimes when we're asking, does God love them? We're also asking, does God love me? Does God love us? So... With these promises of God's love throughout Scripture and all these things, the real burning question for the Romans, and I dare say most of us here, is does God's love for His people change? Does He get just a little fickle about people? Is He really committed to us to the utter end? Well, Romans 9 is Paul's answer to that question with a particular emphasis on the Jews. And he does so by answering with Romans 1 through 8, uh, an unqualified, yes, God loves you no matter what and to the end. Christ has accomplished our salvation once and for all. But he also tells us, even though we wonder, that God loves the, the Jews as well. But in order to understand God's love, we need to understand some distinctions, distinctions in the love of God. And these distinctions show up in multiple ways, a true and false people that's in our text, a true and false children and even true and false loved ones. You're going to see in the next few minutes here that God makes distinctions about his love in many ways, just as we do. But yet, for His glory. So let's start out. The truth is, God loves us passionately. He even loved Israel and the Jews passionately. But there are distinctions to be made about that kind of love. Look at verse 6 and verse 7 in our text. Paul says, "...it is not as though the word of God has, had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are His offspring." But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now, Paul, you'll notice in this text, he does these distinctions by saying, not this, but that. That's one of Paul's favorite ways to talk about things. Not this, but that. And he shows up right here in this text, right off the bat. And he begins by saying, what you've got to understand about Israel and the Jews is even though many of them were actually born ethnically Jewish, From the line of Abraham going way back, physically they were Jews, but that doesn't mean they were actual spiritual Israelites and Jews. Indeed, everyone of all the Jews could trace themselves and their genealogy going all the way back to Abraham, but that didn't necessarily mean they were truly Jewish in the spiritual sense, truly Israelite in the spiritual sense. Look at this slide. I'll give you a, an example of this. Abraham had two sons. He had Ishmael with his, uh, his handmaid, uh, uh, or uh, Hagar. And then years later, he had Isaac with Sarah. Both of these could be called children of Abraham, couldn't they? By blood, by physicality. But Ishmael, we know from Scripture, was not a believer in Yahweh or a follower of Yahweh, but Isaac was. The promise went to him, as Scripture said. In other words, Isaac, not Ishmael, was a true believer. So in short, you might be born into Israel, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're a spiritual Israelite. Why is Paul saying this? And what's that got to do with us? Well, there are two things I want you to consider. The first is this. The family of God. Israel. The church, even. The family of God going all the way back to Abraham was a mixed community. A mixed community of believers and unbelievers. God designed it that way. And that you find it throughout Scripture all the way through in his covenant community. God's family or His kingdom is a lot like this circle. You'll see in the next slide. In this circle, the family can be found in the big circle encompassing all the people who have the name of God or Yahweh or Christ, even in the New Testament. These are the people of God. But inside the bigger circle is a smaller circle. That is the true people of God. The true people of God. This is a distinction that Paul is making. And here's why. Jesus himself made this distinction. He said that in his kingdom there would be wheat and there would be tares. In his kingdom there would be goats and there would be sheep. What's the second implication got to do with us? Well, the second implication is important and even personalized for all of us here today. And that is this, not everyone who calls themselves a Christian or even goes to church is automatically a believer and in the kingdom. You know, as we used to say when I was young, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. To be in the true kingdom of God You and I are required to have a living relationship with Jesus Christ by faith. That is what really ensures that we are a part of the kingdom. That we trust in the Son of God who died for us on the cross, who was resurrected from the dead and lives even now ruling over the world and our personal lives as our king. I'll never forget a discussion I had with a woman at my first church that I pastored at. Her mother-in-law, and I kid you not, was probably one of the godliest women I've ever known. She was an amazing woman of God. Deep faith, prayer, so it was an honor to be with her and to pastor her. And this woman often amused out loud with me about her eternal future. And she would talk about how she there was no way she could get into heaven. And I was like, yeah, that's right, no way on your own. That's exactly right, that's true for me too. But then she would say this, but I know this. I'll get to ride the coattails of my mother-in-law. What Paul is saying in this text is, no one rides the coattails of another person into the kingdom of God. Nobody does. Even among the Jews. Though they were born under with Abraham's name and their history even, and their genealogy, they don't get to ride his coattails, and neither do we. Second distinction Paul makes in our text explains how God loved the Jews faithfully and to the utter end, no matter what. Look at verse 8 and 9 with me, where Paul says this. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but it's the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, our return and Sarah shall Have a son. There it is again. Paul's not this, but that distinction that he's making in this text. And he's saying it's not the children of the flesh by natural childbirth, even ethnic blood, that Israelites got in with God. It was the children of promise who are considered the true children of God. And the reason he says this is What he points us to back in Genesis 18, he quotes this text about the promise that God made to a childless Abraham and to a childless Sarah when Abraham was almost a hundred years old and Sarah was almost 90 years old and well past the change. God makes the promise. You will have a child next year and this to a childless couple. And the amazing thing is that God came through on that promise even though Abraham and Sarah had tried a plan B, well, God's not really working on our time. It's taken 25 years for him to come through on that promise to have a child. We'll just try and do a side route by having a child with Hagar. Did that go really well? No. But after 25 years of waiting, God comes through on his promise and provides at a miraculous in a miraculous way At a miraculous age for Abraham and Sarah, the child Isaac. Don't you see? God will be true to his promise. That's the point. And when God makes promises to us, we get tired of waiting. Our foot is going like this. All right, God, any minute now. Come on. Come through. When in point of fact, God is calling us to believe and trust him in his timing The wonderful thing about this text, again, is God comes through on his promise every time. And he loved Abraham and Sarah, though it was not necessarily on their timetable. What's this got to do with us? Well, as preachers of old have said, there are no grandchildren in the kingdom of God. Only children. Who are connected to God the Father through Christ in a living, direct relationship with God in Christ? And the Apostle John said it this way: You're not born into the family in a natural way. Indeed, Paul speaks of Christ, and I mean, excuse me, John speaks of Christ in John one, saying, "To all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God." Listen to this, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of man, but born of God. Born of God. That's the key to really becoming a true child of God and not living as a grandchild, if you will. Children of believing parents who are here today listening, even if you're a youth. Do not think you are automatically in with God because you were born into a Christian family. You need to call on Christ as your own personal Savior. God's love delivered you from your sin. And He wants you to do business with Him through Christ, yourself. Not waiting on your parents or your family to do it for you. Jesus himself talked about this very problem of how we want to bank on our own uh, druthers and our own background to get us in with God. And he talked about it in his talk with Nicodemus that was read earlier by Lad. Remember that in John 3? In the middle of the night when nobody could see him, Nicodemus, a Pharisee and ruler of the Jews, shows up to talk with Jesus. Now, you've got to understand Nicodemus has had some serious credentials as a religious person. He was a Pharisee. He was a Jew. He was a ruler among the Jews. People looked to him as a paragon of being a religious guy. And he comes to Jesus with these credentials, if you will. And he questions Jesus' way of teaching and what he is saying But the beautiful thing was Jesus was not impressed by his religious credentials. Jesus said to him, you must be born again. He's talking about in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be born of God. You must be born again to see the kingdom of God, to actually recognize it at work in this world, and then see God in the end, ultimately, when we're in heaven with him. True believers in the kingdom of God are not those who merely... Talk the talk and have the credentials. What is the maker of a true believer? Even relative to the Jews. Scripture makes it clear. And these characteristics of true children of God. The first is this. Uh, true children of God are children inwardly, not just outwardly. Romans 2.28 talks about this at length. Like, hey, you can have the law and you can do all the religious stuff. But if you're not from your soul connected to christ by faith and what he's done to redeem you and change you inside out you're not a child of god second you must be born again it's what jesus himself says and of course nicodemus has a hard time with this he says wait a minute how can a man get back in his mom's body and be born again and jesus is like duh i'm not talking about that you're a teacher don't you understand metaphor you must be born spiritually by water and by the Spirit. Third, you must have faith in Christ. Galatians 3 is a marvelous text. It talks about how when we trust in Christ for our salvation, we are children of Abraham. Do you know that? If you are a Christian here today who have trusted in Christ for your salvation, you're a spiritual Jew. That's what Paul says in Galatians about the value of faith being key in being a child of God. And what else does it say? What about works? Because a lot of times religious people say, well, no, wait a minute. We've got to see what's going on with how people are responding. And what we would say is that works is merely evidence of authentic faith, not the grounds or reason we are saved by faith, uh, saved By God Himself in Christ. So, if you're a child of promise, you get to be a part of the kingdom of God by virtue of what God has done in making a promise to save you, not by virtue of what you have done yourself. My question for all of us today is Have you experienced new birth? Have you really been born again through the power of the Holy Spirit so that you have met with Christ and encountered Him in a living way through faith in Him. We all have to do business with that question. That brings us then to another distinction that Paul makes in our text today. A distinction that helps us understand God's love for His people further in verses 10 through twelve, look at this with me. Verse ten says this, and not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of His call, she was told, "The older will serve the younger." Now, here, here's what's kind of ironic about this. This is talking about how God saves us. And it really is unexpected. And here's how it's unexpected. The older will serve the younger. You know, in ancient culture, when an older brother was born before all the other brothers or the oldest child, they're the ones who had the rights in the family. They were the future leader of the family by default. But here, God turns it upside down. The cultural process. And says the older is going to serve the younger. It's unexpected. When you come to Christ, Jesus actually calls us to a different kind of unexpected life. And it starts with God's love for you. God loved his children before they were born. Did you see that in the text? Before they were born, he loved them. As we learn this in Romans 8 and Ephesians 1, God loves you from eternity. Second, God loves his children before they've done anything good or bad which shows God's initiative and commitment to love. And for what purpose does God do this? Paul says, in order that God's purpose in election might continue. That is, God chose his children from the foundation of the earth, and he sticks to his choice. He sticks to his promise to love. Folks, the doctrine of election is way controversial. I admit it. Every time I teach it, people really struggle with it. And it's okay if you struggle with it. I did too. But I want to tell you the good news about the doctrine of election. God wants you. God wants you. And he's been thinking about you from eternity. He's that committed to you. Verse 11 then tells us the greatest news of all. Why God wants you. Why God is so committed to you and me and loving. And even the Jews, the remnant of the Jews who are actual believers. Here it is. It's another not but right in our text here. Not because of works, but because of his call. That God chooses us not because of anything we do in this life, but because of His call on us that transforms us in the power of the Holy Spirit. Just like a parent is there to name a child at birth, so God is there to name us even before we are born. The beauty of this verse, again, is that God loves you not because of what you do, but because of something inside of Him and His desire to call you His own even into a life of living relationship with Him. And you know what we call that? It's grace. It's grace. God's election of us is by grace, not our works. Here's the great news about that for you and for me. For those of us who are performance addicted by nature in our work, in our relationships, even in our what we do with God. And for those of you who watch your assurance go up and down with your performance with God. Here's God's word for you. Stop acting like the blind Jews who either tried to get in with God by association, riding the coattails, or were so afraid of being judged that they performed so that God would somehow like them more. If you are a child of God by grace through faith in Christ... God's love never changes for you. What is it Brennan Manning said? Christ loved you and me so much he'd rather die than live without us. He's infinitely more committed to you than you are to him. And how can we know that? Well, as John Eldrew says, look at the story of the Jews. The story of the Jews is this. God saves them out of Egypt And as soon as they get out of Egypt, are they saying, wow, what an amazing God? No, they're saying, wait a minute. We're in the desert. We're going to starve and thirst to death. What's wrong with you, God? Over the years, God saves them again and again in wars and delivers them from people who are hostile to them. And what do they do? After they win the war, they fall off the wagon and they go follow other gods. As time goes on. Uh, God tries to give them kings who will rule over them and show them what true godly kings are. But even the kings get kind of crazy and are unfaithful to God, following other gods. And it's almost like, as Eldridge says, it's almost like the people of God among the Jews keep falling off the wagon and keep going back to this, like a almost like a prostitute, to men who will use them. So after hundreds of years of this, after they keep going back to other gods and keep falling off the wagon with their sin, what does God do? He sends his son Jesus to die for them. And you know what? This is the picture of how God loves you. We shouldn't wrong God and displease him. But even when we do, God is utterly committed to saving us and changing us. He will keep coming after us as the hound of heaven and will not let us go. This is great news for those of us who struggle today, even with wondering, man, I don't know where I am with God. It's been a dark season in my walk with Jesus. God is pursuing you. For those of you who don't even know who Jesus is, you're wondering, "Why well, I don't get this Christianity thing. Why do they keep talking about God loving me? I don't see a lot of love in our broken world. God is pursuing you. He is relentless in his pursuit. And for you and I to come to grips with that, we have to understand that his love is not our love. It is a different kind of thing. Granted, that love may be a disciplining love. It was for the Jews it may be even a tough love very many times for their unfaithfulness god would do consequences for the jews but always always he was committed to them no matter what that brings us to the last distinction in what is quite frankly one of the hardest verses to talk about in the bible in verse 13 what does verse 13 of our text say look at it with me says this, She was told the older will serve the younger, and as it is written, written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. The I there being God. Now, (laughs) two big points we want to make about this. The first is, this comes right out of Malachi, and it's written this way because in Malachi's time, the Edomites, that is the, the descendants of Esau were taking advantage of and even attacking the Israelites, the descendants of Jacob. And here he's making this distinction about how God loved Jacob, but hated Esau. Now, the obvious problem for all of us here is that little verse that says God hated Esau. God hates someone? Huh? Dean, you've just been saying for 20, 30 minutes that God loves me. How can it be that God hates someone? That's shocking. Well, you have to understand this is a distinction between two real people that God was making in Scripture. And you've got to also remember... What we've been saying for weeks now, God loves all men as the Creator and will cause the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. That is His general uh, Creator love for all men. But that's very different from His fatherly love, family love that He has for His own people. So when it comes to God's promise to love, When we say that God hates someone, it's probably better to say God justly rejects even unbelievers like Esau. Now, skeptics at this point, which may be most of us when we read this text, say this. There it is. It's just like we knew. Christianity is an exclusive religion. My response would be, everybody, let's get the log Out of our eye. Isn't our love. Exclusive at times. Do you love all the children of the world. With the same love you love your own child. If you're a parent. If you had to choose. Between. uh, uh, The danger that could come to a child. That's not your own. And the danger that comes to a child. That's your own. Wouldn't you. Make a hard choice. The same is true of God. God he justly rejects some over others. Remember, Esau was a sinner. Hebrews 12 says he was ungodly and he has such a messed up value system that he would trade his birthright to his brother, Jacob, for a bowl of soup. Something wrong with that. Esau was, as Hebrews 12 says, unholy, sexually moral. He was even vengeful towards his brother so really that God hates someone or justly rejects them makes complete sense when you consider that God is a holy God you think though and I think naturally that the fact that God hated Esau is controversial don't you But the problem is you and I don't see what the real controversy is here The real controversy is that God loved Jacob. That's the real controversy. What do I mean by that? Go back and look at Jacob's life. (laughs) From the youngest age, he is a liar. He is a deceiver, a conniver. He tricks his own father to steal Esau's blessing. He is the kind of person who, if you had him in your life after him being deceived and lied to for the nth time, you'd be like, done. Done. We're not doing this relationship anymore. The real controversy in this text is God loved the deceiver and loved him to death on the cross with his son. That is what real Christianity is about, and that's what we have to come to grips with, is that neither Jacob nor Esau deserve to be loved. Let me go back further. Neither Abraham nor Ahimelech deserve to be loved, neither Cain nor Abel deserved to be loved. Neither Moses nor Pharaoh deserved to be loved. Neither David nor Saul deserved to be loved. Neither Peter nor Paul deserved to be loved. Justice was that all of them would go to hell as sinners. And here's the application we have a hard time in this text. Because we read this and think it's not fair that God would choose Jacob over Esau. But here's my question for all of us, especially in an age that asks the fairness question all the time. What's fair to God? What is fair to God? What's fair to God is all of us are out of here. That's what's fair. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have in some way poked God in the eye. That's what, in fairness, is we go to... The wonder of this text is that you and I are Jacob. When we trust in Christ alone for our salvation... God is proving His love to us again and again by saving us and even giving us that gift of faith. Our hope is in the grace of God that overcomes the worst parts of who we are. Remember, grace is not deserved. Let me put it in this way. Grace is not an entitlement to you and to me. Grace is God's love that is a free gift for His children Who don't deserve heaven and don't deserve a relationship with him, but he wants to give us grace through Christ anyway. God gives that grace to whom he will, even scoundrels like Jacob. And that's the the whole idea of this text is, you know, you and I think, oh, that person should be a Christian, when usually God turns a right around, and the most unexpected people become Christians. We're going to talk more in the next few weeks about the difficult doctrine of election, even predestination. And just to encourage you, if you're struggling with what I'm saying right now, hang on. We're going to have a small group one night in the next few weeks where we're going to talk about this. And you can ask your questions and pelt us all you want with with the real honest questions that you have. But don't miss Paul's point. God's love is so reliable, so relentless, he will search out the scoundrel. God's love is so amazing that He will go after the most lost person you can imagine to redeem, redeem them to be His child. That is the controversial and magnificent and beautiful love of God at work for you and for me. In conclusion, when I was eight years old, my brother and I would go down to the elementary school, Pinewood Elementary in Charlotte, And we go to play basketball on the courts there. And while we were there, one time we went down. There were a lot of guys down there, and they were going to play basketball. And so they had to pick teams to see who would play. And, of course, we all lined up, and I was the youngest one there. You know, like eight, nine years old. All the rest of them are 13, 15 years old, bigger than me, a whole thing. Guess who the last one picked was? That's right. It was me. I was the last one picked. pick. I was the smallest. And I'm happy to say that our team won and I scored like half the points because nobody would guard me because I didn't think I would do anything. <laughs> but here's the wonder of the gospel. God's love is so amazing with his people in history like the Jews and even with us in the church. He is so relentless. He will choose you first as his child every time. nonstop. That's the relentless love of God that Paul's talking about. And that's the kind of love we need to be redeemed. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you that you have loved us and given Christ for us. And now as we think about these hard doctrines of your choice, you would help us understand, Lord, what we actually deserve, what you actually give, and your utter commitment to us in every case. Thank you for the controversial love of Jacob. For the controversial compassion you had on men like the Apostle Paul. For uh, deniers like Peter. For adulterers and murderers like David. For people like us who have our darkness. There is no one like you. And we want you to meet us with your love. Hear our prayers in Christ alone we pray. Amen.